Welcome to episode 59 of the Film 89 podcast. My name's Hayden and I'll be your host this week. Today I'm joined by someone who's very quickly becoming a partner in crime when it comes to all things DC. Uh, John Arminio, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Hayden. It's uh, great to be back on Film 89. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, and um, t- I mean today's topic is a really special one to us. We've been we've been talking about it for a while now, and I, I don't know. You might agree with this. It's also probably as a duo, as as the two of us, it's probably our most ambitious topic to date because we're going to take a deep dive into Watchmen, starting with the original comic, which serialized in 1986 to 1987, all the way through to the present, and what's going on in the world of comics and television, and etc. Yeah, it's one of the most ambitious comic books ever written and uh, the associated uh, spinoffs and sequels and adaptations of one have been uh, similarly ambitious and also sometimes <laughs> problematic. Um, but I do need to say something at the top, especially when, when we get to the TV show. It's a show that deals with like the history of race in America, racial violence, the commodification of black bodies. And I realized that I'm another white dude in my 30s talking about comic books and movies on a podcast. And I also realized that Film 89 has a pretty international audience. So it's kind of uh, incumbent upon me to narrate the history of racism in America. And so I did think about reaching out to person of color to sort of guide us through it with a little more wisdom but you know after like a year of protests and racial strife and police violence against people of color on camera in america i decided to um you know it's not incumbent upon black people to make me feel good about myself as a white person or to educate uh white people about what it's like to be oppressed by them so i'm gonna try my best if i get something wrong if i say something dumb Feel free to come at me at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter, not at Film89, at me, uh, and educate me. I look forward to hearing any feedback. So, uh, all right, that's it. <laughs> Take it away, Hayden. No, that was really well said because I, I mean, I feel the same. You know, I, I, I did my research before we started this podcast and, and you know, we all know what's been going on. It's, we, we know what history looks like but we know it from a very limited perspective so what we have to say is not necessarily us we're not going to be preaching we're going to be talking about the topic because it ties in directly with the property that we're 
that we're discussing today, but in the same way that you've, you know, said, if if anything is said here that, that the people respond to and feel that we have not treaded in a way that's that's respectful, then please let us know, but we will do our best to, to avoid upsetting anyone because there are sensitive topics here and, yeah. and yeah, we don't get to have an authoritarian perspective on that. We can just come yeah. at it from the place of art and our interpretation of that art at the end of the day. I think a fitting place to start would be to find out where you first came to Watchmen, John, and why it's remained a significant piece of literature in your life. Um, I think I had a pretty uh, typical comic book upbringing in that when I was a kid, I read a lot of Spider-Man and X-Men and then fell out of it a little bit. And then in college, uh, a friend of mine gave me Watchmen and was like, you have to read this. (laughs) And I immediately became pretty obsessed with it. And, you know, I've been sort of a devoted follower of comic books ever since then, you know, leading up to where I work at a comic book store now. But, you know, I've been a huge fan of Alan Moore since then. I've kind of become obsessed with him a little bit, especially like while I'm reading his work, he really sort of like occludes all other thoughts in my brain. And I know he does have a reputation for calling himself a magician. And while I'm reading his stuff, he certainly like cast his spell on me with his, you know, weird bearded wizard powers. Yeah, he's he's something of a wi- he's a wizard with with words. His his writing is is so unique and so brilliant. I I came to Watchmen um, only a few years ago, probably early twenties. Um, I was gifted it, and I have to admit, I actually found it a slog to get through the first time. Um, so I read it as a trade paperback. I've since read it a number of times. Um, and I've picked up this really stunning box set, actually, and it houses the 12 issues reprinted as oversized hardcovers. And it became the only way that I can read them. And here's why. It's because I don't think Watchmen is a book that you can digest the way that we commonly digest stories today. You can't breeze through it. You can't binge it. Each individual issue or chapter, if you're reading it as a trade, is this complete work of art. And I can only read one issue at a time because there is so much in there and the the journey he takes you on with each issue. And and we're not we will get into the artists because this was not a, a one man show. This was a team, a collaborative effort. I, I mean, one of my favorite comics of all time is Watchmen issue four, which is the I'm sure you remember it immediately. It's the nonlinear narrative told through the eyes of Dr. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But the the story as a whole, it's it's superhero satire and it's and a commentary on societal and political anxieties of the time. I mean, we're gonna we'll get into spoilers. We're gonna spoil the hell out of the entire franchise from the comic all the way up. But tell us a little bit about Alan Moore because I think we need to get into the man himself to add context to the discussion we're gonna have today. Uh, he's very notably from Northampton, England, and he's made some documentaries about his hometown and history there. And he came up writing for 2000 AD in England, which a lo- uh, pretty much every like writer and artist of that generation of uh, English comic creators, you know, started out as. And he eventually got brought over to DC to do Swamp Thing, and which is one of the most brilliant runs of, of any mainstream book you've ever read. Like, it's it's amazing. And, you know, he started working with uh, collaborators like David Lloyd uh, for V for Vendetta and then Dave Gibbons for Watchmen. You know, Watchmen was a project that initially was going to use um, some, D, uh, some Golden Age characters that DC had obtained the rights for. 
But once DC sort of saw what they were going to do with those characters, like Captain Adam or the Blue Beetle, mm. they could kind of put the kibosh on that. And so they, uh, Dave Gibbons and Almore ended up creating their own characters who modeled after some other Golden Age characters. And eventually that gave them more freedom to do with what with them what they wanted to anyway. And that's sort of how Watchmen came to be. Um, but yeah, like you said, this book in particular was sort of a commentary on how complex political systems and power and the nature of the world had become and that we are unable to process it because you know in comics in especially like the silver age everything has a very linear cause and effect you know guy cr commits crime batman punches him in the face you know the end and it was all, all very clean and linear but especially because of the introduction of characters like dr manhattan there is no linear cause and effect in watchmen it's all told in flashbacks and in in this sort of simultaneous time sphere um so the comic itself is mirroring the way Dr. Manhattan perceives time because, you know, everything is taking place all at the same time, whether that's decades before, you know, that initial scene of the comedian's murder in the, op in the opening chapter or the creation of Dr. Manhattan in 1959. And this all sort of wraps up into uh, Alan Moore and uh, Dave Gibbons' worldview. Yeah, and it, it perfectly captures what comics can do that is different to what any other medium can do. And I'm sure that's going to spill into other conversations that we have later down the line. But but even just the way in which you can have, and this is told with a nine-panel grid, and in a way in which you can have a page and it has nine panels. And, you know, there are instances within the story where all nine panels are told at different periods of time throughout history. It, it, it seems so simple and yet it's so brilliant that he was able that, that Moore was able and Gibbons were able to use the art of comics to tell this story that couldn't have been told any other way or it couldn't have been told as effectively any other way. It's interesting because and and as you said, Alan Moore sort of he got brought across to America to DC Comics, and we did touch on that. Um, we have touched on that in previous episodes where there were there were a number of British writers that were brought across. You know, like Neil Gaiman and Swamp Thing is God. That's the kind of horror book that gets under your skin, and couldn't really imagine it being written today in in you know mainstream DC Comics. So it was a period of time, and so the year before Watchmen started serializing. Or the same year was when Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns also was published. And similarly, in this world, superheroes have been outlawed. All those that are still operating have been recruited by the government. I do find it interesting that that is a plot element that is eerily similar across both works. And I think, it, again, it's a reflection of, of the anxieties of the time and the grittiness of both of those works and how apocalyptic the worlds look without being apocalyptic. If, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think the specter of nuclear annihilation was in the forefront of everybody's mind. And I know that there's this sort of patina of paranoia in everything we do now. And up until 2020, it was just very vague and nebulous, like, okay, well, so, social media and, and deep fakes and like, okay, what is truth anymore? And reality is crumbling. But we didn't really have a like a point to focus on. Of course, now it's it's COVID. And that's our sort of like apocalyptic scenario. But in the Cuban Missile Crisis or during, you know, Reagan's more aggressive uh, attacking of the Soviet Union, the possibility of dying tomorrow was in everyone's head every day. And that has such 
a psychological effect, I think, on on everyone, especially because it could just happen by accident. And there were several instances during the Cold War where we almost launched nukes at each other because of like a misunderstanding or because, you know, somebody misread a radar signal and thought it was uh, a missile, but it turned out to be a flock of geese or something like that. And so, you know, the loss of purpose of one's life was just, you know... everywhere. And the idea of somebody solving crime by putting on a costume and punching people in an alley was just like anathema to reality. It was a fantasy that didn't fulfill the need that fantasy fulfilled 20 years before. And there's so much irony and dark comedy within Watchmen that points to the futility of, of, you know, two nations pointing atomic weaponry at each other. There's so many, so much dialogue that kind of just cuts at the heart of of how little sense that makes. And not only that, but I think about the characters themselves within this work. And there's so many very obvious parallels between, you know, the characters that Moore and Gibbons created and the DC characters that existed at the time. You know, the the ultimate big bad of Watchmen had a fortress of solitude out in Antarctica. The Batman character, quote unquote, was this grossly conservative and very damaged individual who didn't have this lavish lifestyle you know in his day-to-day life this was a book in which Moore wanted to say what if this was actually real it wouldn't look like what it looks like in the pages of a comic and which isn't to say that the pages of a superhero comic yeah I I do think that Rorschach I think Batman is split into Night Owl because he's you know, mm. the um, nocturnal flying animal with gadgets-themed superhero. But then there's also the sort of violent reaction against childhood trauma that Rorschach embodies, and that is part of Batman. But I think also in visual aesthetic, he's very much also like the question. So mm. it, it is difficult to sort of parse out like where those characters end and the Watchmen versions are canonical characters. And yeah, I I think it's a more complicated relationship to superheroes than just Rorschach is Batman or Night Owl is Batman. Of course, it's clear that (laughs) Ozymandias has a Fortress of Solitude and that is a clear reference to Superman. But Mm. they're that's probably the only similarity Ozymandias has to Superman because, you know, he's the only billionaire in the, the superhero world in the Watchmen universe uh of course that's he doesn't have any other characteristic similarities to Bruce Wayne except for you know his money and intelligence yeah yeah I find that Night Owl is Night Owl really fascinates me in this book because of how mundane and generic he comes across intentionally of course in that he's the most superheroic in morally in the work but there is you know there's a there's a scene near the end where Ozymandias where Adrian Veidt just says to him, grow up. And it's this, it, it just cuts right to the heart of, of what this book is, is doing. It's saying you can't save the world by, you know, taking to the streets and beating up bad guys at night. You know, capes and cows are just, you know, they're fantasy, they're, they're childish. And this book is sort of doing that. It's And, you know, I, I find that that also ties into the use of the squid at the end. And I, we probably do have to add a little bit more context here because this isn't reflected in, in the Zack Snyder film. So people who haven't read the book may not be all that familiar with the squid, but that is a very comic book way to end this story. It's it's yeah. very cut and dry, and it's absolutely intentional. Yeah, it's something that you can only do in comics. And I think 
what makes the ending so powerful in the book is how it's visually portrayed. Mm. Uh, because one of the strengths of of a lot of Alan Moore's work, and in Watchmen in particular, is the utilization of the nine-panel grid. We're going to get into some comic book theory here, people. Do it. So in a nine-panel grid, every image has the same import on the page. So there's no like big splash action scene and then like dialogue in in smaller panels so you can have somebody getting murdered in panel one uh a cut to another scene of somebody eating a burger in panel two and then panel three back to back to that murder and you know you are going back and forth and so it's an ironic juxtaposition of mundane activity and then horrific violence and and um alan moore used that frequently in in V for Vendetta, in uh, From Hell, and in, in Watchmen. But in the final sequence, you get big, gorgeous splash pages of pornographic violence. Yeah. Like we it, are, it, we're forced to look at the horror Adrian Veidt has wrought, and it, it's repulsive. And we have to sit and meditate on it for eight pages of gore. And it takes, and so it's using the structure of comic books to take away the sort of catharsis we get from superhero violence. It's giving us the form of catharsis and making us disgusted by it. Well, yeah, and when you choose a grid, so when you choose a nine-panel grid, you're dictating how you want the reader to to follow the story. So it creates a language with the reader. And then, yeah, when you get to that 12th issue and it's just splash page, splash page, splash page, it's a real smack in the gut. Like it's, it, it makes it so much more vivid and so much realer. And it wouldn't have been as effective if it was, yeah, the same grid outline, but with, you know, close-ups or snapshots of, of the carnage. It, it needed to have these big shots of what had happened all throughout New York City. So wh- why, don't, why don't we explain... I guess, <laughs> in a backwards way, what does happen at the end of Watchmen? You know, Watchmen is on its most surface level a murder mystery because it starts with the murder of a sort of retired, quote unquote, superhero, the comedian. Mm-hmm. And then it's Rorschach investigating that murder. And he eventually comes to discover there is a conspiracy to murder former superheroes. And there's a lot of red herrings throughout, but it turns out that Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, the smartest man in the world is getting rid of superheroes to sort of take attention away from his real plot, which is to construct an alien squid from another dimension, drop it on New York City, and so then humanity believes it is being invaded by aliens and unite against that common foe. It's a plan born of madness, but at least in November 1985, it seems to be working, uh, of course, at the end, there is the insinuation by Moran Gibbons that the secret will get out, um, but that's the that's the purpose of the big giant space squid. Yeah, and I mean, not only that, you know, Rorschach has a journal that gets sent to a press, but also that you know, there's Doctor Manhattan saying to Adrian Veidt at the end, "Nothing ever ends." When yeah. Adrian shows his only moment of vulnerability when he asks, "Did I do the right thing?" It's the only time we ever see that character vulnerable. Every other time he's calculated, he's arrogant, he's full of hubris. And then he asks the world's most powerful person and he gets nothing. Yeah. And it's it's a moment where we see not only his vulnerability, but his foolishness. Mm. Because he's kind of the only person that's been able to understand 
uh, Dr. Manhattan's perspective on time, that it's eternalism, that everything that has happened has already happened and everything that will happen is happening now. Hmm. And he prefaces that question with, in the end. And so Ozymandias should know that nothing ever ends. Yeah. But he's still so full of, like you said, hubris that he's like, well, can I get a final ruling on my actions now? God, then yeah. it's not going to come. Let's talk a little bit about the fallout, I guess, because this book finished serialization in 87. I believe it was released as a trade that very year or the year after. It's since been reprinted 20 to 30 times. I don't know. It's, it's been reprinted a lot over the course of the last few decades. But Alan Moore has very publicly distanced himself from the work and even as early as as 87 there was talk of getting this thing made into a film and he was approached to write the script to that film and he declined so from the very beginning he's been vocally against this work entering other forms of media i think there's there's two very telling examples of why he i can understand why he would never want this to be adapted um, Alan Moore writes comics that are to be comics. What like he mm. he he chooses stories that are that can only be told in the medium he's best at working in, and, and tells those stories. So, in 1985, he basically designs a crane shot going from ground level to the top of a skyscraper. And now with CGI and you know drones, we can do that. But obviously, in 1985, you didn't have that technology. And mm. so that's when you. You open the book with uh, the smiley face with the, with the blood on it, and then rising up to the you know top story window where the comedian was th- was thrown out of. So that's a, that's an impossible shot. It, mm. it could never happen. But also, Alan Moore frequently in his work in Watchmen and From Hell has characters face the reader. Now, in a movie, that implies a breaking of the fourth wall. Mm. Uh, so like like Ferris Bueller or something like he's talking to the audience, but you don't have that effect in comics. It's just where the character is facing, and so the relationship to the person consuming the content is totally different, much more passive in a film than when reading those works. And you know, like Doctor Manhattan's perception of time, you can go back and forth at at will, but there is no breaking of the fourth wall when that character is facing you. And especially somebody who narrates quite a bit, like Rorschach, he's probably the character with the most page time in Watchmen. The relationship the reader has to those characters is completely unique to the comic book form. Yeah. So after Moore turned down the offer to write a script, it went to um, a screenwriter, Sam Hamm, who described the job of adapting this 300 plus page comic that utilizes this incredibly busy nine panel grid as an arduous task and i want to go back to the nine panel grid again because it's still used today it's not used as often anymore it's it's quite rare um tom king is one writer who uses it in a lot of his his mini and maxi series but you know you have nine unique art and story panels on a page that it's doing so much the fact that you know that there was talk over the years of you know, there would be directors that come in and they would say i don't want to do this it needs to be a five-hour miniseries or something like that because there's just too there's so much here there is so much dialogue there's so much subtext and narrative and th- there's just a lot that's gonna get missed and ultimately 
I think we're probably going to be in agreement that a lot did get missed just by nature of it getting adapted into a three-hour film. You know, part of it is just Alan Moore's anathema to popular culture of the late 20th century and, and beyond. He he just doesn't like mass media. Uh, that's part of why he severed ties with DC and Marvel. He's never going to work with, with them again. Well, so let's talk uh, about that because oh, sure. that was all about ownership disputes. Yeah. Where Moore and Givens, they signed contracts and they believed that they would get the rights back for those characters, assuming they weren't going to be used by DC. But there's also talk of them signing quite ludicrous contracts with DC that would afford DC the rights. It's a little bit murky. I don't know if you have a little bit more context that you can offer. At the time, it was the standard practice of DC to uh, retain the rights to characters as long as that book was in print. Hmm. And in the 80s, that meant not long after the, the first printing. But watch, as long as DC is still in business, Watchmen is never going to go out of print. Mm. And so I think that really rankled, you know, Alan Moore and much more than Dave, Dave Gibbons, because Dave Gibbons still has his name on, you know, the various adaptations. Well, Alan Moore has is sort of removed his himself from the credits of, it, of everything. So I don't know how the contract for this specific work was constructed, but it's very unique in terms of other works of the 80s in, in that it just stayed in, in print constantly i think it's a bit rarer because dc you, you don't often find that characters are created by incoming collaborative teams for a dc comic yeah i'm just gonna say like you know frank miller's not surprised that his batman book is still in print because he, he kind of went in knowing that batman was going to be mm -hmm. dc's forever and ever yeah. but i i, I'm, I think Moore and Gibbons thought, well, we're creating these characters and they're ours. They probably should have looked at DC's history with creators because <laughs> they've been doing this kind of stuff since Superman. Uh, that's just how they do business. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's not it unique really to sucks. them either. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's real shitty. Let's go on to the film. We can go back and forwards because the book sure. is this tome that I think we just have this utmost respect and adoration for but the film took many years to get off the ground eventually it you know passed through a lot of creators fingers and ended up with Zack Snyder who released in 2009 a Watchmen adaptation that was in many many ways incredibly faithful almost to a fault and then changed the ending quite dramatically what, do you, what are your thoughts it's a very stylish film <laughs> it looks very good I, I think it's predominantly well cast, but it just isn't Watchmen. Like the the irony, I think I think Zack Snyder is somebody who has no concept of irony. I just look at Three Hundred. Yeah. So we we're we we're talking about how you know the, a splash page in, in comics is sort of a celebration of the of a superhero's moment. You know, a, a phenomenal visualization of their prowess as a superhero. And we get, and it lets the reader kind of take joy in that moment. And Watchmen very self consciously takes that away from the reader. Mm. So, but with Zack Snyder's way of shooting action, he glorifies the violence that these characters are perpetrating, and and that's what an action movie is for. But Watchmen is not an action comic; it's a philosophical meditation on the horror of living in a world where cause and effect have no meaning so for when he does his slow motion speed him up ramping in like the prison fight scene that that's as far away from you know watchman as you can get as cool as it, as it is 
and to, and if you're not going to do the squid at the end, you're not doing Watchmen. It's a comic book. It's a comic book ending. And Adrian Veidt was engineering a comic book ending because he knew he, he knows he's a comic book character and his psychosis has sort of like internalized that. Mm. And if you're just going to turn it to Dr. Manhattan, that to me, it, it doesn't work. And, and to, to shy away from the horror of violence that's at the end of Watchmen takes the teeth out of any commentary that the work has. I'm thinking about the end of that movie. So I, I, quite enjoyed it the first time I saw it, which I may have even seen it before I ever read the comic, perhaps why I enjoyed it. And my enjoyment has sort of waned over time. I can still appreciate yeah. it in, in some ways, but I, I'd be hard pressed to say that I, I love it or that I would revisit it willingly. But I think about the ending of that film and I don't think about the carnage and the destruction and the, the horror. I remember Dr. Manhattan killing Rorschach and uh, Night Owl screaming in anguish in the snow. And I think that almost kind of hits the nail on the head a little bit in that he glorifies these characters that were not meant to be glorified. And he also glorifies action that, that isn't meant to be glorified. Like the first scene when the comedian is thrown out the window. That is a very ugly sequence at the start of at the very beginning of the book it's not pretty the comedian is is aging he's got lines on his face he look he's you know missing teeth which speaks again to to how you say you know he's facing the reader in that panel i think you probably know which panel i'm talking about and, and then in, in the film it's this it's an extended action sequence there's there's elements that weren't in the opening scene of the comic and it's slow motion and it's Again, it's a celebration of the violence. It's it's meant to be wowing us. It's meant to be making us think this is, you know, this is really cool. And, you know, it is. Like, it's people enjoy it and, and they should because it's some good action choreography. But as you say, again, it's not Watchmen. The comedian is not someone who deserves a hero moment. <laughs> you know, he's a character that embodies America in Alan Moore's eyes. Like, he's mm. this, like, pure unstoppable violent id who rapes a, a character he's a murderer he, he 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 kills a pregnant woman in vietnam there's nothing redeeming about him except his perspective on the joke that is life mm. and the ultimate punchline is that america's ultimate warrior goes out like a chump yeah and if and if he doesn't go out that way you're not doing watchmen the horror of like American imperialism is, you know, throughout the book, the idea that Vietnam becomes America's fifty-first state, and, that, and that's something that the the show definitely touches on. But when you when you give the ultimate actor of America's foreign policy this cool badass send off, it, it takes away the commentary of you know what is America except another empire builder that 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 Alan Moore's and and Dave Gibbons' work is doing. You know, it's using the comedian, it's using Dr. Manhattan to crush other countries and other empires uh, and bend them to America's will. And when that's done with like, you know, cool slow-mo explosions, it, it takes away the, the power of that commentary. I, I even the so the montage that starts the film I quite like it sets the I think yes. it, it it actually cuts it, it sort of it gives enough exposition I, I suppose that couldn't have been done any other way for a three hour film. I mean there are parts of that montage that are just sort of like uh, you know the comedian 
assassinating JFK, which isn't in the book. But apart from that, you know, it's fine. It's fine for setting the stage. I mean, you cast Jeffrey Dean Morgan and he's, he's quite a charismatic actor. And so all yeah. the, all the lines that are in the comic that co- the comedian says, and you know, again, they're not meant to be heroic statements, but in the film, you know, he says, you know, you're looking at the American dream. I'm paraphrasing. we keep this up congress is pushing through some new bill it's gonna outlaw masks our days are numbered until then it's like you always say we're society's only protection from what are you kidding me from themselves son of a bitch get your stinking hands off me what the hell happened to us What happened to the American dream? What happened to the American dream? It came true. You're looking at it. You're meant yeah. to, for some reason in the film you're meant to you're meant to be on his side and and when he yeah, with yeah with with the cigar and the star on his shoulder and and Jeffrey Dean's Morgan charisma, it's like what if you cast Clint Eastwood as Captain America in 1973? Like mm-hmm. that that's what it kind of comes across as, and that's that's not the character. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but um, one thing about the comedian that I thought was really interesting, I saw I watched an interview with, with Dave Gibbons, and you know while he was designing these characters, he he couldn't come up with the right tone for the comedian, like. Initially, he had the word comedian. Okay, well, I can't make him a clown because that's a joker. Hmm. So he went the other way and you know made this like bondage, leather clad, leather hood c- kind of guy. And you see that in like one panel in the comic or maybe more. Sorry, he says, "Well, that's too dark and too on the nose." And so, well, how do I contrast that? Okay, I'll, I'll have him wear a smiley face pin. So it was just this like sort of ad hoc thing he was doing to try and get the, the tone right. It, it was not something that uh, he or more decided on it was just you know in the process of designing the costume and it's become like the icon of the franchise ever since then so i just thought that was really interesting yeah and that's a microcosm of the achievement that this work is because it is it's a wholly original mainstream work of comic that has a whole entire cast of completely original characters set in an alternate timeline of, of American history. And I think it's, and with any art, it's very easy to to watch or read or listen to something and, and 
and you're meant to fall in, in into that world and it's meant you're meant to breathe through it or you're just meant to be engulfed in what, what you're consuming. But it's easy to forget how much work goes into, especially comics, yep. as as a as an um I guess I'll use the word aspiring comic book writer and someone who is in awe anytime I get a, an art page from an illustrator of, from a script that I've written, I'm just in awe because they've taken the work that I've put on paper and they've done so much more with it than mm-hmm. however many words I put in a panel description could encapsulate. So I think that comics artists can be easily overlooked in, in a lot of yes. these conversations. Yeah, and while we're talking about panel descriptions, uh, Alan Moore in the comic book community is notorious for his lengthy instructions and descriptions uh, as to how his work should be illustrated. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's almost <clears throat> cartoon. When you look at it, it seems almost cartoonish, but if I would like to contextualize that a little bit, yeah. um, and, and this is directly from Eddie Campbell who, who illustrated from hell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because he was coming up in the eighties, you know, there wasn't email, or even readily available fax machines, everything was done via mail or phone conversations. And especially if you were on different continents, that made things very laborious. So it was incumbent upon the writer to put as much information as was needed in the script. So that's one thing. But it was also a very conscious conversation that Alan Moore established with his collaborators because he would put things that were impossible to illustrate. He would put in like <laughs> smells and things that were like off in the distance that were impossible to illustrate in a nine panel grid, for example. Hmm. But then Alan Moore would then see what his artist had illustrated and he worked with collaborators he trusted. And, okay, so well, all right, if I see that illustration and there is no smell in there, well, okay, I know that I need to then write a line of dialogue about the smell of London, of this street in London. And so his page long description of one panel becomes a conversation between him and the artist. And I think that's a really, and it comes from the fact that he trusts his writer to make the most of those illustrations and then anything else it's incumbent upon him to sort of build upon and i just think that's a really interesting way to collaborate yeah that's incredible and it's fascinating because comics is it's not like it's not like filmmaking in terms of screenwriting there isn't a hard and fast way to do it every writer and every artist has their preference on how to write them and how to interpret them Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I find it fascinating reading about, you know, not only tried and true collaborators who have worked on heaps and heaps of books together, like Brubaker and Phillips, but also, you know, people who have who've been pulled together, say, uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo for Batman a few years ago. And I, I remember listening to an interview in which, and, and Snyder and Capullo, they're, you know, they're best buddies now, they're they're incredible collaborators and they're friends outside of work. But at the beginning, Snyder would, maybe in a similar way to Moore, maybe not quite as as heavily, but he would write incredibly detailed scripts. And Capullo was not used to this. He was used to getting a script that's a bit more, you know, it will it will give him the the narrative flow, but it's then he's allowed to interpret that as he as he wants and and the two came to blows on this and yeah and I, th- I think what's what's humbling about that is that Snyder sort of for that particular collaboration had to learn to maybe put aside some ego 
and distance himself from that particular work and say, okay, yeah, this, this isn't just my baby. This is a a team effort and he had to compromise in some areas. And I'm sure, you know, the artist had to compromise in areas as well. I'm sure there are horror stories as well. I personally haven't read any horror stories of, of writers and artists who just could not work together. I suppose people probably don't want to talk about them, but it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. You also see some collaborators now, they credit the artist and the writer as storytellers you know, mm. so-and-so. And I, so it's like they're giving themselves equal credit. Um, because, you know, sometimes like if you just search for a comic book online, you know, Google will display like Watchmen by Alan Moore mm. and it, or Batman by Scott Snyder. And like, well, there's also the the artist, the colorist, the, the inker, yeah. the letterer. Uh, it, it is a collaborative medium. It's not as largely collaborative as film, but, you know, just because the writer's name is like first in that list, like, you know, you, you can easily do a comic with no dialogue. Very there, true. There's been, there's been Hawkeye, you know, there's a, a Hawkeye issue yeah, by Matt Fraction that, that David Aja, Aja. Um, but you can't do a novel with no words. Yes. Uh, so it's it, it really is a visual medium. And yeah, the, the artists really do need uh, more focus, certainly. Yeah. I mean, another example is uh, there's a Batman and Robin issue from a few years ago by Peter Tomasi and Pat Gleason. Um, and that was the aftermath of, of a Robin death. There are so many Robin deaths. but <laughs> And that's a silent comic of Batman in mourning. And it, and it was yeah. probably my favorite issue of that entire run. So you're right. Absolutely. The... And it's getting better, mm-hmm. but there is still maybe too much emphasis on the writer. I personally, you know, as someone who writes scripts, I feel like I do, I don't know, 20% of the work and <laughs> the artist is is doing the rest. It's, yeah, it's absolutely a visual medium first and foremost, in my opinion, which isn't to say anything about the writing. So I guess we're moving through and we're, we're moving past the film and DC has made efforts to, to to revive the Watchmen moniker. So they had the Before Watchmen initiative, which was a series of prequels dedicated to individual characters within Alan Moore and Gibbons' original run. I, I haven't read any of those. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on those, whether you think they justify their existence in a sense. Oh, you know, you and I have talked about this. They're fine. The The art in a lot of them is incredible. You had people like Jay Lee and Michael Allred do art in some of those. And I'm, I'm not going to turn down any opportunity to look at Michael Allred or Jay Lee's art on superhero no. books. But do they add any necessary insight into the characters? Do, does any of the narrative approach any of the power of the original book? Like, not really. Um, I don't hate the fact that they exist. But if if you're looking for storytelling on the level of the original graphic novel, you're just not going to find it in, in the Before Watchmen series. As I was as I was doing research for for this episode, I came across a little bit of backstory that Alan Moore said in in eighty six or eighty seven in the midst of publishing Watchmen that if the book was successful, he would consider a prequel titled Minutemen. And I just had to pause when I read that and think about what could have been. <laughs> Yeah, if he wrote a Minutemen miniseries, that that would probably be amazing. Yeah, so I guess the next biggest Watchmen project is the 2019 
HBO series, which again, there was the, the series, there was a series in, you know, sort of development for a number of years, even around the time of Snyder's film in which Snyder may have been attached to a series, which obviously would then have, I assume, been linked with the film. Thankfully, that's not the case. I, I'm glad that the series we got doesn't critique the film. It just bypasses it and wants to follow the comic directly taking place 34 years into the future. It kind of does critique the film because in the, the within the HBO show, there is a cable network miniseries called American Hero Story uh, that's shown to be full of lies and nonsense. And when we see footage of it, its action scenes are filmed exactly like Zack Snyder action scenes with slow motion and like speed ramping to to regular speed. That's so interesting. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, this is a straight up like insult to Zack Snyder right here. And it to me, it kind of made me laugh. And and the original Watchmen is rife with meta commentary. So I think it's perfectly in the preview of the HBO series to do the same. Yeah, I did read an interview in which I don't know, I don't know if it was Lindelof directly or someone else on the project. They did respond to to this. I believe there was a little bit of talk about how there were links being created between American Hero Story and and Snyder's film. And the interview, the the interviewee, again, I think it was Lindelof, but I can't remember, so I'm not going to say for certain. But he. They said they didn't, they hoped that that wasn't the case, that it wasn't a reflect because it wasn't an intentional critique of Snyder's film. This may have been creative courtesy. Um, I doubt you would come out and say straight up that yeah. you were critiquing another another artist's work within your own. Yeah, but it's it's a incredibly like stark stylistic shift. Yeah. All of a sudden, within this this story, and then it's never that technique is never used again. Uh, so it, it's got to be on purpose. Yeah, I thought it worth mentioning, and I like that it sort yeah. of yeah, 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 yeah. It exists within the HBO film, sorry, series, in a similar way that the Black Freighter comic exists within yeah. Moore's Moore's book. Not not quite the same by any means, but it's still it's it's world building, I guess, is a really simplistic way of, of describing it. Yeah, and it's it's also a way of I think it gives us insight into the role of the Will Reeves character. Mm. Yeah, so I, I think we should we should back up and start at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so the opening sequence of the series is the the Tulsa massacre of 1921 and that's an incredible artistic choice because a lot of people in America and around the world thought it was fiction like well it's a fictional HBO show and they're going to show this fictional event that leads to the rest of the series but no that that happened Mm. you know so I know we have a lot of international listeners here and a lot of American listeners who don't know (laughs) history unfortunately but it's something that's not taught in a lot of schools i've i've known about it for a while but i can't place like where i initially learned about it but in in the 1920s and before uh, a black community had kind of made its way to tulsa and started what was known as black wall street and it was a thriving kind of economic miracle kind of a a harbor of uh, black culture and and freedom amidst you know jim crow america and eventually um the kkk and the local government conspired to erase that community and um brutally attacked it without provocation uh 
you know, they went in with police and, yeah, uh, airplanes, like, literally bombed the city. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so it was kind of an unprecedented act of terrorism on an American city in, in the 1920s. And it obliterated that community. Yeah, and so and so the Will Will Reeves was a child at the at the time. Uh, he, he is a fictional character, and that sort of triggers his journey throughout the rest of the series. And he's even seen watching a silent film about Bass Reeves, who was a real person, uh, a very famous marshal in the Oklahoma Territory. Uh, and I think it's something really tragic about him as a person is that, you know, he ends that film turning to camera and saying trust in the law. Well, in real life, when Oklahoma became a state, he could not continue his work as a marshal because he was black. And so he was sort of relegated to being a local sheriff. He, he received a very drastic uh, diminishment in his authority because of the law. And, and I think that sort of irony is, you know, really poignant. Yeah. And as with a lot of people, as far as I understand, the first episode of, of HBO's Watchmen was my first time hearing anything about Black Wall Street. And I think it's worth anybody who's listening, it's worth anyone's time to read into that. I, I've been working my way through an essay that actually inspired Lindelof to go down this route for the series uh, on the Atlantic called The Case for Reparations. I'll, I'll um, endeavor to put the link in the post that we put up for, for listeners, um, or I'll put it on Twitter as well. But I think that it's really damning. It's a really damning piece of history. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to go as far as to call it brave to open a, a television series with it but it set the stage for the entire show and yeah it told you exactly what it was going to be unapologetically and in that sense i think it won it won me over i guess with its just ability to say yeah this is this is what we're doing here yeah and initially i was pretty opposed to watching it ozymandias is a psychotic supervillain, basically right mm-hmm. and his company sells a perfume to cover up this, you know, a, a beauty product that covers up stink called nostalgia, right? Just from that, we get Alan Moore's take on what nostalgia does and, and who sells it to us for mass consumption. And mm-hmm. so I was not into Damon Lindelof's version of Watchmen. Uh, <laughs> but when I, when I heard about what they did in the opening sequence and the response of a lot of white people in America who called it racist or, you know, said it was liberal propaganda or something. I was like, oh, maybe I should be watching this. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and hey, you know, when was the last time Prestige Cable series had a 40-year-old black woman as the lead? True. Uh, yeah. So I, I was, after the first episode, I was kind of all in. Um, but I think one thing, I think before we get too deep into the show, it, it's a failing of of HBO's Watchmen is that for um, a series that very self-consciously recontextualizes and de- dives deep into the history of racial violence in America for it and for it to set it in Oklahoma that it never no one ever even says the words Native American you don't see one on screen it's like they don't exist but Oklahoma is where the Trail of Tears ended the second largest reservation in the United States is the Choctaw Reservation in Oklahoma. So it seems like a pretty big oversight to like pretend Native Americans don't exist in this universe. And I'm not asking HBO's Watchmen to comment on 
like all racism in America and, and all the America's racial violence. But it's but if you're gonna make that like the theme of your show and set it in Oklahoma, it, it seems like a big fault in you know in my eyes. Yeah, it's it's almost like setting the table for something that you're not gonna deliver. It, yeah, a similar thing happens in the first season of Westworld. If you saw that, where it, it has the Native American element, it has hosts or you know androids within the park that are you know, Native American. They're kind. They're basically just um, they're very one note and. Mm-hmm that feels like a failing they do endeavor to to give a little bit more depth to that aspect of the series in the second season and again these works of of fiction um we're not asking them to do everything and that's we're we're not necessarily critiquing them for not tackling every little thing that they should be tackling but that it's conversations that need to be had right like it's worth mentioning because if no one says anything then then yeah, Th- that's how ignorance sort of spreads, and that's so. Basically, the show it takes place thirty four years after the events of the original comic. So the the squid has been dropped on New York. It's resulted in three million deaths, and in some ways, Adrian Veidt's plot was successful, but not. Again, it's it's the tagline of the show. It's Doctor Manhattan's line at the end of the of the comic. Nothing ever ends. There's more to yep. the story. And what I really appreciated about the series was that it actually it wanted it almost it almost exists in a vacuum, right? It's self contained enough that it, it is its own story. It has its own identity, but it also has so much there for people like you and I that appreciate the comic. There's, there's enough there that it's not just, it's not just, you know, um, fan service. It's not just homage for the sake of homage, but it, it manages to, to work on both levels. You know, it's its own story that justifies its own, its own right. Yeah, and I, I do think what it does with the reemergence of vigilante heroes is really interesting because we see heroes like Regina King's character, the Night Sister, uh, Sister Night, sorry, and Looking Glass, uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character, and how they work hand in hand with the police and how the police are also all masked. Mm. And, you know, if whether or not, you know, that's a good decision is debated, you know, throughout the series, and I think in really interesting ways. But I think it's also very much not Moore or Gibbons's vision. No, it's far from um, it, isn't it? Yeah, because looking at like From Hell or v for, Vendetta, v for Vendetta or Watchmen, these stories are all about how power inevitably leads to tragedy for the people whose power is like lorded over, right? So in, in From Hell, the cultural and societal disparity between the powerful and the unpowerful, the rich and the poor, is going to lead to eventually a Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Like the cold, unfeeling way the royal family looks at the poor in the East End, those they're going to be fodder for their insanity. And the same way with governments in Viva Vendetta or superheroes in Watchmen. And so the idea that there are good cops <laughs> is anathema to Alan Moore. Like he has good characters who are cops or authority figures in his work but their efforts come to nothing mm. and through through like ironic twists of fate or pressure put on them by their superiors they may they might even make things worse so the idea that vigilantes 
and the police could work in tandem to do something good like fight white supremacy is something that is not an Alan Moore kind of story. Even that is is quite an interesting, you know, direction to take the narrative in. Um, Yeah, because, you know, in America, in, you know, recent history, study after study after study has found that the most dangerous terrorist element in America is white supremacy and, and white supremacist groups. But, you know, during the protests after the murder of George Floyd in America, uh, Donald Trump and Republicans tried to get Antifa declared as a terrorist organization. Antifa is not an organization. It's like a political philosophy, a very loose one. And so a world where the declared intention of law enforcement is to suppress white supremacy seems like kind of a, a an optimistic future, really. You know, I, I, I would take that feature over this one. Yeah. But then the, the show also, it kind of has its cake and eats it too, in a sense, yeah, in that, yeah. you know, the police captain is secretly working for this yeah. white supremacist group called the 7th Cavalry and the yeah. the political leader who sort of, you know, is revealed Joe as the Keen. big bad. Which I, lo- I love lines. He, I, 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 I apologize. I don't know his the actor's name, but he's sort of sleazy. Yeah. But charismatic deliveries are so spot on like there's a there's a moment where he's, he just blatantly says we're not racist and then you know he'll then slander the uh sister night you know the next episode or even that same episode i can't quite remember but yeah james wolk that's is, yeah. is the actor's name yeah so there is a lot of um back and forth between the real world and the fictional world as far as that that sort of language like you know they'll talk about how like the scales have tipped too far in the other way. It's it's hard to be a white man in America is, <laughs> is something he says. But yeah. also what's interesting to me is that Will Reeves frequently refers to a vast and insidious conspiracy. Um, that's tr- true. And, you know, back in, in the forties when he was a, um, a police officer in New York, there was this wing of the KKK called the Cyclops that was, conspiring to use mesmerism to incite violence in black communities. And vast and insidious conspiracy is exactly the language that Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in the 90s used to describe uh, the liberal agenda, and that was cause for the Republican revolution in in Congress in the 90s that sort of would eventually lead to like Trump, um, you know, like 20 years later. And so I think that very purposeful phrase, I think, was very interesting for them to for them to use i mean i guess it's almost like violence begets violence sort of thing and yeah it, it is a little bit of a like um like you said cake and eat it too like okay well racism is the purview of insane psychos and masks seeking world domination but mm. all us regular folks over here like we're fine yeah <laughs> there's not a racist bone in our bodies right the all the racism is the kkk right yeah that's yeah, not yeah. Really the way it works unfortunately Let's let's kind of let's let's touch on the elements of the original comic that are in here, and by that I'm talking about uh, Laurie Blake. So we didn't really we didn't discuss her at all actually when we were talking about the original book, but she's one of the main characters. Her name is Laurie uh, Juspezik. In so in the original book, she learns that her father is Eddie Blake or the comedian. If you've seen the movie or you've read the book, you know that that's sort of a big twist. I find it very interesting that she changed her name to Blake for this show. What, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. I kind of don't know what to make of it. She does have a very conflicted relationship with the comedian, especially when she finds out that he is her father and and why. But I, I think she was just so trying to separate herself from her former superhero identity uh, that she was willing to take on this this other name of of something that she found, you know, pretty abhorrent. Mm. Um, but man, Gene Smart as Laurie just like hits it out of the park um, yeah. in, in this show. And I, I think my favorite scene in the show is when her and Tim Blake Nelson are in her office like trading jabs at each other. And it's just a conversation. And she keeps calling him mirror guy. <laughs> and, and, you know, he says, I know you, I know, you know, my name's not mirror guy. Like, like they are the MVPs of the show. In my opinion, like they, they kill it every scene they're in. And it was just so smart of the show to get these two killer character actors for these really essential and very tone setting uh, supporting roles. Yeah. The back and forth is so great. And, and as you said, Laurie Blake, her presence in the show is so... The show wouldn't be what it is without her, I don't think. It, it, she adds this level of levity. She's not taking any shit. Like, she's, she sees through everything and because of what she's been through. And it's brilliant. The third episode might be my favorite episode, which is the one in which she's introduced. And the beginning is her working for the FBI and staging a bank heist just to capture a vigilante who's trying to save the day. So there's all, all these little sort of moral snippets in which this hero who's very clearly meant to, you know, resemble Batman all the way down to his voice yeah. tries to save the day and, and did he get shot? Yeah, he gets he get shot, but his armor, he, he had some bulletproof armor. And, you know, of course, somebody asks uh, Blake, how do you know he had, <laughs> you know, how do you know his armor would stop the bullets? And she just doesn't answer. Well, and then and and then there's a scene later on when she meets the other two masked police officers who are taking someone in for questioning in a not so I guess ethical manner. <laughs> and she she strolls up and she asks, "Are your human rights being infringed on?" And then you know he starts to whatever say his piece, and she just tells him blankly, "Actually, I don't give a shit. Like I don't care." Yeah. <laughs> She's just at that point where she doesn't care, except that she does yeah. because then there's the scene in which she's talking in the Dr. Manhattan capsule. You don't see a lot of moments, again, of vulnerability with her, but the one it makes the moments that you do see more poignant. It's not everyone who's had a sexual relationship with a god, mm. and, you know, she did, and that's got to affect you for the rest of your life. And And so it seems like she spent quite a bit of effort to, you know, extricate herself from that relationship and she's done a stellar job but yeah you know what she saw as a young woman you know the murder of three million three million people in new york it has has stayed with her and so she's kind of dedicated her life to seeing that kind of horror doesn't happen again yeah so on dr manhattan you know he's the he's the godlike figure in this universe he obviously makes an appearance in the show what did you think of how they implemented him so at the end of the original comic he he tells adrian vite he's leaving this galaxy for a less complicated one he's gonna go create his own life which he does and i mean it's it's a whole it's a whole web there's so much context that perhaps we can't explain in in a sentence or two but what did you think of their implementation of, of dr manhattan into the series did you think that it worked yeah, I, I really did. It's kind of nebulous as to 
why specifically he walks into this one bar in, in Vietnam, other mm-hmm. than the fact that he's going to marry Angela. Mm-hmm. But we've seen him in the Watchmen comic. His vulnerability is his lingering human emotions, his attachment to Laurie or the women in his life. And so you can suspend disbelief to the point that you can understand that Dr. Manhattan would come back to Earth because he's lonely and because he's seeking human companionship again. Yeah. And I I do think it's interesting that he picks this place in Vietnam. And and in their initial meeting, it's clear he does have regrets for what he did in Vietnam. And I think it was one of the most powerful lines in the series is that, you know, Angela asks him, if you knew you're going to regret it, why did you do it? You know, talking about his destruction of the of the Viet Cong. And mm-hmm. he says, haven't you ever done something you knew you were going to regret? That really like recontextualizes his actions in a way that I hadn't really thought of before. You know, like, yeah, we all do things that we know we're going to regret in the morning. It's just that Dr. Manhattan feels more tied to those regrets because he's feeling them right now. Yeah. And it's almost like it's, it's relative, right? He makes, he does things that he regrets on the level at which he can make those regrets, which is he's this, you know, all powerful God being. We can't necessarily make mistakes on that level, but he can. And, and yeah, it adds a humanizing element to his character. And, and I have read sort of critiques where it's like Dr. Manhattan didn't save the world or, you know, in the original or didn't save New York city because he doesn't have the feelings or desires or needs of humans. But I think that the, the one thing that he still does have is, the needs of a human being and that's again as you said that's why he keeps coming back you know that's why he came back to start a relationship with sister night and the phrase that's repeated from the book is a thermodynamic thermodynamic miracle mm. that you know of all the the eggs and sperm that human beings create throughout their life we are the ones that result you know, or e- even going of all the supernovae that have exploded in the history of the universe, those these particular dust particles have coalesced in a solar system, and the primordial fire, fires of creation have formed our Earth. And 13.7 billion years later, here now, you and I are having this conversation right now. Yeah, and that in itself is a thermodynamic miracle, and that sort of cosmic happenstance uh, fascinates Doctor Manhattan, and that's sort of what brings him from his temple on Mars back to Earth at the end of of the original book. And so that sort of like cosmic logic uh, is still driving him in, in the show. That, yeah, and what you just said, it it reminds me of that, that scene within that issue in the book. And it, it's such a simple example of Alan Moore's talent as a writer because that conversation with Laurie on Mars starts with him saying, this ends with you in tears, which obviously to Laurie and to us as the reader, we assume, okay, he's not going to come back. He's abandoning humanity. But then there's as such a simple twist at the end because he comes all the way around and he realizes of all of the people all of this you know what you've just said right it was laurie the the child of a man who tried to abuse a woman and the woman somehow grew to love that man at least in a moment and yeah it brought her into being their relationship is fascinating because they come to realize that this relationship could not 
continue with him experiencing all time at once. And so Dr. Manhattan goes to Adrian and asks him for a way to sort of sublimate his powers. Adrian being Adrian has already come up with a way to do that. (laughs) And so he and then Angela sort of decide to put his consciousness into a human body. And out of all the options, Dr. Manhattan lets Angela pick his body Mm. and the most and it's saying something that the most powerful being in the universe chooses the body of a black man to embody you know to live out his existence as um and i think that's a fascinating choice and i think it's also fascinating that this woman who grew up in vietnam she doesn't say i choose this one or i like this one the best she says she looks at the one black body in the morgue and says this is the this is the one I'm comfortable with. You know, I, I think that's like a really fascinating scene and I'm st- still trying to like put it together in my head because there's also sort of the erasure of black history in the whole theme of, you know, Tulsa, but also in the way that Hooded Justice, who we find out has been a black man all this time, is portrayed as a white man in um, the American Hero Story uh, show within the show. And also, it's sort of reversed with John Osterman, a white man, inhabiting the body of a black man so then he can live out as a, a black woman's husband. And so there's all of this sort of like Mobius strip of black and white body switching. And Adrian even comments on it, saying that this sort of appropriation is, is problematic now. Yeah, and I, I it's a... The show's like having a conversation with itself on this topic, and it doesn't really land specifically on like a take, but it's a really fascinating conversation to watch. Yeah, and I think perhaps it's better off for not having landed on an answer to that debate that it's having with itself. It's a push and pull, It's and it's messy, yeah. and, and life's messy, and that's the whole point, I think. And, you know, again, I a broken record but nothing ever ends is that is that tagline it keeps coming back to that and there isn't a clean ending and there never will be like it's just it's not a fairy tale it's new events are taking place new things are happening i mean there won't be a sequel to this show i imagine but Mm -hmm. there could be because you know that's just what life is like at this point yeah there are things that the show really does leave hanging like like jim beaver in the first episode just is like a seventh cavalry member that he just sort of like shows up on Angela's porch and is kind of threatening and then leaves and then we never see him again. And, and he's such a great actor. So just for to give him like 60 seconds of screen time and then to never see him again is very odd. It seems like they might've had plans for another few episodes or something. They did intend on 10 episodes. They ended up scrapping the 10s because they felt it would be filler they didn't see they didn't feel like they mm-hmm. had they were closer towards the ending when they'd gone to episode yeah. uh, six i think um than they anticipated and there's also very little perspective from the vietnamese you know the, the vietnamese characters are a suicide bomber lady true who's a psychotic billionaire fuelist hubris and then lady true's mother who steals ozymandias's sperm but we don't really know like how and why and how it operates that Vietnam is a state now of America. Like yeah. that's weird, right? Like, like this entire country is now part of an American empire. 
and and we get that there is like civil strife there because we see this suicide bomber who kills Angela's parents. And you know, Lady True is the name of a third century BC like warrior queen who fought against Chinese imperialism. And so you know, so she's like a national hero in Vietnam. And sort of you use that name for like your psychotic supervillain is kind of a weird take. Like I get that it it's kind of paralleling Adrian Veidt's use of Alexander the Great iconography. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like there could have been more of like what is going on in Vietnam and what the Vietnamese people think about being a state now. And, you know, again, it's already, there's already so much in the show. Uh, but, you know, for, again, for a show that self-consciously takes on like the horrors that America has enacted on, in its past, uh, it, it seems like uh, something missing. Yeah, yeah. I go back and forth forwards on how I feel about the show's ending and ultimately Lady True being the, you know, I guess the big bad, the the main antagonist at the end of this thing. Because as much as I enjoy the storyline with her and Adrian, I think there's such a rich sort of irony to that entire storyline. I ultimately often, I've so I've watched the show twice through now and both times I've watched the final episode and I've felt at the end of it that something didn't click for me. It feels somewhat anticlimactic that it tried hard in the last episode or last two episodes to build Lady True up, but maybe it speaks to to that comment you just made about there being so much that they're trying to tackle. I it just I don't know. Did it work for you? Perhaps it's just me. Because there are some, they do have some quotes, Lady True and Lady True's mother, about like I will not bend to you to be a slave, and that mm. kind of thing. So you get some like like brief insights into the sort of repulsion of the Vietnamese people might have about being under the boot of America's foreign policy. But Lady True's motivation is ego and power. Hmm. Uh, so it might have made her a more engaging villain if if her goal was to like liberate Vietnam or something, but it's it's more just like so she can be a god. I, I thought was what was much more satisfying was the end of uh, the quote unquote end of Dr. Manhattan. Hmm. Uh, where he sort of like I thought it was incredibly touching the that final scene between him and Angela where you know he's talking about like, you know, I've always been in love with you, you know, like I experience every moment we're together all the time. Yeah. And so for, for this, like for this godlike being to express such open affection for, for the woman he loves, I thought it was incredibly tender. And then yeah. for, for him to put his powers in an egg, an egg is a returning motif in the show. And so for the option of Angela to eat an egg and then become Dr. Manhattan, I thought was a really brilliant, way to to end the show so not like an a a big action climax kind of way but a great kind of cap at the end yeah i mean (laughs) i couldn't help but sort of after second viewing after the credits rolled thinking so what happens next what if she just falls in the water (laughs) (laughs) but no um i mean and yeah and then the, the last when he's in the in the um, tube he's trapped and he he sends uh laurie adrian and looking glass to save the day and Angela asks why didn't you send me like I could have helped and he just goes I didn't want to die alone um again I might be paraphrasing but yeah again it's just it's really touching and it speaks again to what we were saying earlier about Dr. Manhattan's character in that he's so 
unhuman in a lot of ways, but he has that, he still has that. And I think that that then bleeds into the comic that we'll discuss after this, which is the recent DC comic miniseries, maxi series called Doomsday Clock, which was a marrying of the Watchmen universe and the DC universe proper. Oh, real quick before we get into that, I I do want to address the the way the the show used the squid. So, like in the, I think it was the first episode we see this this reign of like baby squids that are now like a nuisance in in this world. Yeah. Uh, like kind of detrius from that other dimension is what Adrian Veidt is like kind of that, that's the continuation of his plan that it's to remind the world that they're still out there. Yeah. But we see the attack on New York via flashback of looking glass and yes, yeah. a, a, a sequence where it's, it seems like he's a Mormon missionary uh, in very Catholic Hoboken, New Jersey, trying to like recruit. And it, he's, you know, embarrassed and humiliated. And, and the attack happens while he's like naked uh, inside of a funhouse, and he comes out and half the people he sees are dead. And this psychic energy has like, shattered his brain and he's just walking around screaming what happened what happened and then you see this like gorgeous like shot of you know flying over new york of of the the space squid and the kind of carnage that it's wrought so we don't see the attack per se but we see preview we see first the like the detritus of it in present day we see sort of the ripple effects of it decades later or decades earlier i'm sorry and it's like looking glass has been shouting what happened ever since that day and it's wrecked him psychologically and it's wrecked the world psychologically Mm. and it was just such a brilliant way to implement the impossible to film aspect of of the comic you know through the perspective of these kind of ancillary characters and i I just thought that that was a brilliant choice it's such a damning scene that it's what a great way to open it was the opening scene in i can't remember which which episode but i think it was episode five yeah and it um and i believe that was his sort of central like that episode was his focal episode you know it goes to show that it could have been done on film (laughs) yeah yeah it's a great scene Another thing I wanted to mention before we uh, move on from the show is the uh, homosexual affair Will Reeves as Hooded Justice has with his fellow Minuteman, Captain Metropolis. It's not really clear if he's living his life as a closeted gay man or if he's bisexual. And, you know, that changes the context of the affair since he's also married uh, with a child. But um, it does speak to the layers and layers of masks he's wearing in his life both as a superhero and not. And it also shows how, even though it's clearly a affectionate affair, uh, Captain Metropolis dismisses uh, Will Reeves' concern over you know the conspiracy of Cyclops. And it speaks to how white people at the time are unable to see uh, the, the racism in the country for what it is and shows how lonely uh, Will Reeves is as a superhero and as a cop. So moving on, and we can go back and forwards again as we please, because the next, the most recent Watchmen project, it's sort of, it was, its release schedule was a mess as, as, as we Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, but it finished its run in 2019. So the same year that the HBO show aired, it was 2019 it ended, yeah? Wasn't this year? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, started in 2015. That's right. Yeah. So it was called Doomsday Clock. As I mentioned, it was a marrying of the Watchmen series with 
the DC mainstream continuity. Why don't you set the stage for us? Because while I have read it, I read it as a complete story. I didn't follow it on a monthly basis or whatever schedule it was keeping. And I think that I'm probably in some areas, I'm not the best commentator on it because there is elements of it that are great as a little follow-up to the Watchmen, but then there are big sections of it that are very focused on the multiverse of the DC yeah. of the yeah. DC continuity. It was supposed to be published along with DC's 2015 rebranding, reboot, whatever initiative uh, called Rebirth, where they were going to sort of combine the New 52 continuity with the sort of classic continuity and, and basically do a best of all possible worlds continuity because DC's continuity is, is a mess. It could have been, I think, really brilliant because in a lot of ways it's a commentary on the sort of pervasiveness of superheroes because, you know, when in the comic, when Dr. Manhattan says, I'm leaving this galaxy for one that's complicated in Doomsday Clock, the one he chooses is Golden Age DC. And I think that's really interesting. Like uh, he goes to a place of black and white morality where there's, you know, there's right and wrong and where there is cause and effect and where maybe experiencing all time at the same time isn't so burdensome. And so for him to then experience like the rebirth and rejiggering of the various DC's crises and continuities and and whatever, like through Dr. Manhattan's eyes, I think is a really interesting way to comment on like what these superheroes have meant to us as a species. But then to do that, you sort of have to be like, okay, well, how do we experience the story? And so then you have to come up with this like kind of really roundabout way of, well, okay, Adrian Veidt's plan to unite the world, it gets revealed, and so he brings in, like, the substitute Rorschach, who's, like, the son of the original Rorschach's psychiatrist, and these other two characters who might or might not be superhuman and have other connections to other characters, and they somehow get teleported into the mainstream DC universe, which is not the Golden Age universe, and so then you have to explain why Dr. Manhattan is now in the mainstream DC universe, not the Golden Age universe. <sighs> um... <laughs> But I love the Superman in this series. Like for me, it's a Superman story. Mm. And Gary Frank, I think he's based, he's drawing Christopher Reeve, and and I kind of love that. Uh, I love how they characterize Superman. I love how at, at every step, Superman sort of like makes the the most moral this even if it's not like the most strategic or logical decision. He's putting himself out there. He's forcing himself to be the brunt of like moral fortitude for every single person on earth. And that's like the Superman we want. Yeah. And seeing that moral purity and lack and lack of ego that's kind of in Superman, like fascinates Dr. Manhattan. Like I, like he's, I don't, for my world, there aren't people this good. What does this mean? And so he's like, manipulating Superman's continuity and Superman keeps being good. And that whole conversation and meta conversation, I think is just really fascinating. Yeah. the That juxtaposition between Superman and Dr. Manhattan, it's almost like Doomsday Clock is a commentary on Watchmen is a commentary. It's like Dr. Manhattan in many ways is the antithesis to Superman and this series sort of brought it full circle in which now Dr. Manhattan he comes face to face with a character who's basically all good and I completely agree the the parts in which this book was 
its best for me was when it was about Superman. It is a Superman story. I don't know. It, it's trying to be so many things, right? It's yeah, yeah. Jeff Johns is in many ways doing his best Alan Moore impression. As obvious as that is, it's almost also where the book is its best, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are a lot of it, it's a very literate comic book, and it's something that rewards close reading. Mm. Uh, because, you know, certain things like Lex Luthor discovering a, t- a picture taken in 1956, but found in 1938. Yeah. And so, like, so these kind of, and it's a picture that was a, originally taken in the Watchmen book. And so if you know that picture that stayed with Dr. Manhattan since 1985 in this continuity and through his transition into the DC universe... And he's hopping back in time within the DC universe, planting this picture wherever he goes because it's the one thing that ties him to the Watchmen universe. It's just this really interesting like web of reality and, and time that uh, Jeff Johns and Gary Frank and Brian Anderson are, are weaving as you know the DC characters we know are trying to figure out like what is going on t- to their world. And because one of the glaring omissions from the initial launch of Rebirth was the Legion of Superheroes. Mm. And if this book had come out on time, it would have been a really interesting way to explain whether there's no no Legion right now, because the one Legion of Superhero character like dissolves into nothingness and is forgotten. And that if things were coordinated correctly, it would have been like a great integration of this event with DC's larger like release slate and would have been a way to be, you know, a, a very meta commentary on the very prospect of reboots uh, in, in comics. But, mm. you know, it didn't really work out that way. It's a really interesting, huge swing, but also imperfect. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's everything you're saying. It's, it's, and it, it has a lot of fun with it as well. It, yeah. And another example is the, you know, and, and, and it uses the nine panel grid again to really good effect. You know, one panel, Dr. Manhattan's narrating and he's saying, it's uh, it's 1938, uh, super-powered man is carrying a car, which, you know, is the iconic cover from Action Comics number one. And then, you know, next panel, it's 1938, there is no car. I, I don't envy the job Jeff Johns had on this book. Like, he, he had to do a lot of things. Yeah, and, you know, he had to, you know, include Rorschach. But, you know, how do you do that? And this sort of required a much more sympathetic Rorschach. And how do you do that? And so the ripple effect of the original Walter Kovacs' insanity and worldview are devastating and far-reaching. Yeah. And so to to use the son of the psychiatrist of Walter Kovacs, I think, is a great idea. But I really could have used... A, like a six issue miniseries just about that character and just like really dive into the psychology of that kid and what he had to go through. So not only the trauma of losing his father to one of the most notorious psychopaths in the world, uh, but also then to lose his parents to the attack on New York and what that did to him. But there's just so much else going on that I think you lose some of the psychological depth that character requires. I haven't read either of the first two issues of Tom King's Rorschach. I, I, mm-hmm don't know if is it tied to this no no okay um i i don't know enough it it seems like that rorschach is the original rorschach okay but that's also like impossible so yeah i i I don't know yet (laughs) again nothing ever ends they're always bringing watchmen watchmen 
won't like it's it's had such a huge resurgence in the last few years and what do you think of that do you think that they should keep using these characters and or does it continue to dampen what alan moore was originally trying to do with his his book in 86 um if i was in charge of dc i wouldn't ever do that I would never commission more Watchmen stories. Hmm. But if talented people are going to write them, I'm probably going to read them. You know, better Tom King writes it than than me. Uh, or, <laughs> or, um, what What is damaging, I think, is like I, I hate to bag on actual ongoing comics, but the, the death metal event that DC is doing right now is so bad. Like oh. Scott, Scott Snyder, I don't know what happened to him. But it's it's awful, and he's using he has used Doctor Manhattan as a way to kind of like Deus Ex Machina the powers of the Batman Who Laughs character, which is like has been Scott Snyder's baby for the last five years, mm. and it's it's a it's an incredibly uninteresting, boring, stupid character that I don't want to have any part of. And so for him to have the gall to at one point bring in Dream in the last middle event, and then in this event bring in Doctor Manhattan, it's like. Get out of here with this bullshit. So when when that stuff happens, it legitimately does piss me off. But if if they want to do a twelve issue maxi series about a character, like okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Tom King's Rorschach series is not going to do anything to detract from the original Watchmen. No, I think a writer like Tom King, I, I'm a huge fan of Tom King. Tom King's work. Yeah. I haven't yet. We've discussed it before. I haven't yet completed his Batman run, but I've read enough of his his books to know that he knows his way around comics and he, he does his research and he, he writes books that, you know, he, he does a lot of work on Jack Kirby characters and he yeah does them justice. So I, I'm looking forward to reading Rorschach. I'm not sure when I'll get to read it, but, but yeah, someone like Scott Snyder, he's, I guess, each new book that he's written since since he finished his Batman run in, what, 2015 or something like that. Yeah. I think each new book, it's almost like he's trying to broaden the scope and make it bigger. But I know where you're coming from. I haven't read any of his new Death Metal series. I read the first Dark Knight's Metal, I read that. And I, I didn't mind the Batman who laughs, but he's definitely a less is more type of character, you know. Yeah. He worked in that book, but I can't and I did hear that his uh, miniseries was popular, but I can't imagine the the staying power. For for me, um, I go back to uh what Neil Gaiman says about working with these sort of iconic characters. Because you know, Neil Gaiman's somebody who's worked with both original characters very famously, but also has written, you know, Batman, et cetera. Mm. And he says that it's almost a relief and very fun to, in his words, play with other people's toys and to be in somebody else's sandbox. And you could do whatever you want with those toys while you're in the sandbox. Just don't break the other person's toys. Yeah. And because Doomsday Clock uses a lot of new characters, uses a lot of DC characters very faithfully, and incorporates world events in the same way that Watchmen did. It doesn't break any toys. And it gives us interesting um, kind of droplets of hope and sort of parallel thinking with the HBO show in how, like, Dr. Manhattan imbues his powers in organic material so he can pass them to somebody else. That That's an, that's an idea that both Doomsday Clock and the HBO show share. Mm. And it's an example of two different creators playing with toys in very creative ways, but not breaking them. 
Yeah. Well, uh, Scott Snyder has been breaking toys ever since New Fifty Two, and it's just it's it's frustrating. And 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 Tom King, I think I understand why people don't like him or don't like his take on, you know, Vision or or the Jack Kirby characters. Like I I I get that, but for me, he's using those toys in extraordinarily creative ways, and because he uses them in twelve issues at a time, he can then pass those toys off to somebody else. And he's yeah, he's he's he's. Managing to be creative and, and be original and not break those toys. And Mr. Miracle is one of my favorite books. Yeah, me too. Maybe maybe ever. I just I really like that book because it, it ta- it's not afraid to tackle some quite heady themes. So I think and I think the- thematic resonance is what you can what you can use within within these toy boxes. You don't necessarily need to to create world-ending events or crises. You just need to tell stories that are true to the characters. I think we've had a similar conversation in our Constantine episode. Yeah. So I don't want to go around around in circles. And who who am I to say that there's a right or a wrong way to to write DC characters? I'm not doing it. But I think we we know what we like and we can comment on that. I I think one thing that both Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons actually regret about Watchmen is that that and the sort of like gritty take on superheroes that came about in the eighties is that it it forever shifted comic books to thinking that dark meant important and, and serious, and that's not what Watchmen is. There are incredibly sweet moments, and a lot of the times these superheroes are viewed with sort of like a, an admiring naivete because those characters are so deep. And so, like, having a Batman who laughs uh, from the darkest universe in the metaverse or or the multiverse bring the darkest elements, you know, out there imaginable in, into our world, that's not maturity or that's not creative storytelling. That's boring. One of my favorite comic book series of all time is Astro City. That And so if Watchmen is postmodern, uh, Astro City is post-postmodern in that it's it's commenting on the commentary that Watchmen was, was doing and sort of like re- recontextualizing it in a way that's positive. Like what would it be like to be a 911 operator in a world of superheroes or what, what does Superman dream about the, the, these kind of questions. Mm. And it, it's, it's a really brilliant and beautiful way to look at what if superheroes were real, but in a much more positive light. And that is a mature storytelling that I, I think I'm looking forward to you know comic books continuing, and I think writers like uh, N.K. Jemison, uh, who's doing the Green Lantern miniseries Far Sector, is doing uh, brilliantly. You know, Mark Wade's been doing that, that kind of thing uh, for decades, uh, and so uh, I'm hoping for more more stories like that that acknowledge Watchmen and incorporate the wisdom that you know Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons imparted upon us in 1985 but adding something new rather than just like making everything gory and and miserable yeah it's not enough to transition those panels into like for instance a film like snyder's film where you get all the bombast but you lose moments like in the 12th issue of watchmen when dr manhattan walks through adrian's fortress and he spots laurie and dan on the floor naked in each other's arms and he smiles and then that's the last we see of him the film doesn't have that and and that speaks to those those moments that you mentioned that that get overlooked like you you can't just blow all the toys you can't blow the toy box up you you gotta use finesse and 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, what, one of my favorite um, issues with Spider-Man in the last couple of years was an issue by Chip Zdarsky in Spectacular Spider-Man, where he revealed his identity to J. Jonah Jameson. And it was the entire issue was just them eating lasagna and talking about it. <laughs> and it, it was, I loved it. It was amazing. Yeah. And yeah. I, maybe just because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 36, you know, I'm not 19 anymore. And I, I just want different things from comics, but you know, that's the kind of mature story, storytelling I want more buds, share a meal guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's the thing. Comics can be way more than uh, someone like Zack Snyder thinks they can be. You, you, they, yeah, they can appeal to everyone. There's something out there for everyone. Yeah, and 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 holy hell, like yeah, there, there's creators like like Molly Ostertag and and Faith Aaron Hicks who are and Noel Stevenson who are doing like amazing things with like the the y, YA graphic novels and stuff. And and it's a joy when I see like you know 11, 12 year olds like with, with a pile of graphic novels you know, leaving, leaving my store. And and that makes me optimistic for the future of comics um, and, and that there are different people and, and different voices who are sort of, you know, outside the superhero purview. And that's great. If that brings them into my store, awesome. Yeah, there's been some great, I guess, new age sort of works. And like there are new genres in comics that are appealing to a market that maybe didn't exist a, a decade or two ago. And and that's yep. a really special thing. And hell, I think my niece is writing and drawing a little comic of her own. And that's really cool. And I love awesome hearing that and there, there are fans of snyder's movies so i'm not at all trying to suggest that those are the wrong way to interpret comics but there's more than more than a singular view and it should be celebrated yeah and and just if you've never read a superman comic don't say no i don't like superman he's he's, he's too yeah good. he's yeah. too perfect no there, there are some great superman comics out there birthright by mark wade Mm. that's that's one that's one of my favorite comic books of all time so yeah re- read that read doomsday clock you i hope you you can fall in love with superman yeah he's a special character i think that yeah but as with any character any property any story as long as it's told well um and he may be hard to write i'm sorry w- one line that i love from doomsday clock is uh he when pondering superman uh dr manhattan says he calls he calls superman a man of action and in, in a world of action i'm the villain you know he, yeah. he calls himself a being of inaction and i think that's such an an interest an interesting way to sort of juxtapose himself with with superman yeah I mean, we could talk for hours about Watchmen, I think. Probably. We haven't even begun to cover it, and maybe we will again one day. But for the time being, where can people find you, John, if they want to reach out to you, discuss anything Watchmen, anything DC? Uh, yeah, I am at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. Please hit me up with any questions or comments, even insults. I'm here for your flaming. Uh you can find Comics Connection at comicsconnection.com or on Facebook. Uh, I'd be happy to recommend books to you. Uh, I love comics and movies. Come at me. Awesome. Yeah, please give us your feedback if you enjoyed the episode. If you have any thoughts or feelings about any of what we've discussed today, we'd love to hear them. You can find me at Hayden Spiral at Twitter or Facebook. Um, you can find us as a whole at film89.co.uk on Facebook or Twitter as well. Otherwise, for the time being, stay safe and stay classy.